Hello and welcome to the third episode of As Yet Unexplained, and it is also the concluding part of our two-part look at the UFO sightings of 1978. In this six-part series, we will also be looking at the stories behind some of the most famous mysterious tales of the strange, paranormal and unexplained. The Kaikoura Lights are possibly one of the most important sightings on record, as they have many independent witnesses, were picked up on radar and even filmed by a television crew. But are these events in some way connected with the disappearance of Frederick Valentich? If you like what you hear, please consider liking, subscribing or even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. The Sightings of 78 Part 2 Kaikoura It was December the 21st, 1978, and the time was around 12.10am when the first of the sightings occurred. Radar bowls situated in New Wellington, New Zealand, picked up what air traffic controllers could only describe as an unexplained blip. A local pilot by the name of Vern Powell was at the same time piloting a Safe Air Limited Argosy 4 engine freighter aircraft, which was flying southward and was carrying its cargo of newspapers from Wellington to Christchurch, and then northward from Christchurch to its home base in Blenheim. The aircraft began observing a series of strange lights around their craft, which seemed to track along with their aircraft for several minutes before disappearing and then later reappearing in a new location. The UFO was described as very large and had five white flashing lights that were visible mounted to its body. Some witnesses said that they could see some little discs drop from the UFO and then disappear. The pilots described some of the lights to be roughly the size of a house and others as small but flashing brilliantly and rhythmically. I think at the time I described it as being the size of a house burning in the sky and that's actually what it looked like, like a, a, a house fire, that sort of intensity of colour but uh, a little bit pear-shaped. Powell described the objects as anything but plane-like in nature. Douglas Mabin, who heads New Zealand's Mount John Observatory, stated that in his opinion... People have been able to give us um, a fair enough uh, description of the time and the position in the sky. They see these things, we're able to work it out. And every report I've had, we've had the, that sort of description, we've been able to identify it. The reports of these have been going on for so many years now, and if there's The sighting had attracted a number of interested parties, despite the official explanations disregarding the witnesses. One particular person who was not convinced by the astronomical explanation was a reporter for an Australian television station, 
by the name of Quentin Fogarty. Fogarty's station had requested that seeing that he was in New Zealand already, that he should cover the story of Vern Powell's sighting. The press and media were still very much interested in UFO sightings, as it was only two months previous that Valentich had disappeared, not far from the sighting area. A week or two prior to this flight, we had heard about the uh, Valentich incident in Australia, where uh, Valentich was flying from the mainland to Tasmania and radioed back that he was being zapped by bright lights and everything. And then the audio went dead. They've never found him. They've never found any records. They've never found anything. And I think when Captain Bill Startup got the okay to fly off course towards this object, I think the feeling was amongst all of us, are we going to get zapped? You know, are we, is, is something going to happen? Are we going to be taken away? Uh, so it, there was some anxiety there. The Melbourne TV station was therefore trying to capitalise on the UFO interest and the sightings that had been generated by the unexplained and already much publicised Valentich disappearance and its possible UFO connection. I thought the job would be interesting. It was a good story. We were following up a strong UFO sighting. I had an interest in that. Um, but I didn't for one second even begin to imagine that we would get involved in something ourselves. December the 31st. 1978. Fogarty assembled his film crew, which consisted of New Zealand cameraman David Crockett and his wife, the sound recordist Nari Crockett. The Crocketts had interviewed the radar controllers and a pilot who were witnesses to the sightings. Fogarty decided to go one step further with his small documentary and arrange a flight on one of the newspaper flights. The group set out on December the 31st and the witnesses on board the plane during the flight south included the flight crew of two, pilot Captain William Startup, with 23 years of experience and 14,000 hours of flying time, and the co-pilot Robert Gard, with 7,000 hours of flying time. Both Captain Startup and Guard were aware of the sightings of December the 21st, but they had not been witnesses. During the flight back north, Neri was replaced by reporter Dennis Grant from Christchurch. As far as all the crew of the Argosy aircraft were concerned, this was essentially a routine newspaper transport flight from Wellington to Christchurch, followed by a flight to home base in Blenheim. The only difference in this flight was the added presence of the TV film crew on board. Fogarty and Crockett hoped to film proof of what Powell had reported. Fogarty realised that the chances of seeing what Powell saw ten days earlier were remote. Although everything was in place, Quentin Fogarty still had some misgivings about the endeavour. He stated, There were stages there where I was very, very frightened. I mean, I thought, well, if I was to die, or if in fact I was to be removed from the aircraft in some shape or form, then it 
wasn't going to be a painful process. And you can't, I can't really explain why I felt that. It's just a feeling I had. The flight path was long, and at about 12.05 a.m., while the plane was crossing the Cook Strait, Captain Startup and his co-pilot first observed some oddly behaving lights ahead of them near the Kaikoura coast. They had flown this route many, many times before and were familiar with the lights and landmarks along the coast. These lights would appear and seem to project a beam of light downwards towards the sea and then disappear, only to reappear in another location. The number of UFOs would change throughout the encounter. Sometimes there was only one, sometimes none, and sometimes several. The pilots and co-pilots began to discuss what they were seeing. They could not identify these strange lights or their odd pattern of activity, which made the captain think of the kind of manoeuvres adopted by our own air organisations when in a search operation mode. It was 12.12 when it was decided that they should contact Wellington Air Traffic Control Centre radar to establish if there were any aircraft near Kaikoura. Co-pilot guard was flying the aircraft at this time, so Captain Startup communicated with Geoffrey Corsa at the WATCC. Do you have any targets showing on the Kaikoura Peninsula range? Asked Captain Startup. Corsa had been preoccupied but had noticed targets appearing and disappearing in that region for half an hour. There are targets in your one o'clock position at uh, 13 miles, appearing and disappearing. At the present moment they're not showing but were about a minute ago. The co-pilot responded, if you've got a chance, would you keep an eye on them? Certainly, replied Geoffrey Corsa. Fogarty and his crew had set up a camera in the cargo hold of the aircraft to do a piece-to-camera shot for the documentary. This involved filming Fogarty explaining to the viewers that he was on board the same aircraft that had sighted the UFOs ten days previous, and that the TV crew would remain alert for anything unusual. We're now approaching the Clarence River, where the highest concentration of UFOs was sighted on the morning of December the 21st. It's a beautiful, clear night outside, and naturally, we'll be looking out for anything unusual. Fogarty started to do a second piece to camera immediately after the first, while the equipment was still set up. During the second piece, he had planned to say that the plane had landed at Christchurch and they hadn't seen anything. This was a good way of economically filming in advance and so avoiding any tedious setting up of a similar shot once they had landed. However, he did not get the chance to record the second segment because Captain Startup climbed part way down to the cargo hold and told the crew to get up here fast. At about 12.15, the TV crew came onto the flight deck, where the air crew then pointed out to the TV crew the strange lights that they had observed near Kaikoura. The very first thing we saw was these sort of balls of light that would just appear in the sky. And I mean, it was really just looking through small windows at a very, very black sky and seeing pulsating lights. Um, that started usually as a very, very small pinprick of light and then would 
glow into a, like a, a great globe of light. At approximately 12.16, the first radar visual sighting had occurred. WATCC reported to the flight crew that a target briefly appeared. 12 o'clock to you at 10 miles. Startup reported that he looked ahead and saw a light where none should have been located and described it as follows. It was white and not very brilliant and it did not change colour or flicker. To me, it looked like the tail light of an aircraft. I'm not sure how long we saw this for, probably not very long. I did not get a chance to judge its height relative to the aircraft. The unidentified target was not located on the second sweep of the radar. It was 20 seconds later when WATCC reported strong target showing at 11 o'clock at three miles. This new target lasted for four radar rotations and 48 seconds after that, WATCC reported a target just left of nine o'clock at two miles. Captain Startup stated that he looked out of his left window and saw nothing in that direction except stars. 85 seconds later, WATCC reported a target at 10 o'clock at 12 miles. Again, the captain reported no visual sighting. Captain Startup stated that he had the impression from the series of targets that were being relayed to him by the WATCC that some object that was initially ahead of the plane had travelled past the left side. He decided to make an orbit, 360 degree turn, to find out if they could see anything at their left side or behind. The captain sought permission to make a left-hand orbit and the WATCC responded that it was okay and reported, There is another target that just appeared on your left side about one mile, briefly then it disappeared again. The captain responded that we haven't got him in sight as yet, but we do pick up the lights around Kaikoura. The air crew was still observing anomalous lights near the coast. The plane was making its left turn in a circle. This process would take around two minutes to complete, and it was at this point that the radio crackled into life as the WATCC reported that the target I mentioned a moment ago is still just around five o'clock to you, stationary. During this turn, Corsa had noticed radar targets continuing to appear and then disappear close to Kaikoura. We just heard from Wellington Radar that we've uh, got an object about a mile behind us and it's following us. Let's hope they're friendly. Fogarty was in a position whereby he could watch the skies and stated that he continuously saw anomalous lights over Kaikoura. That is, they appeared to be higher than the lights along the coastline at the town of Kaikoura. It was now 12.27 and the plane was on a southward heading along its original path. It was along this portion of the route that the WATCC reported target is at 12 o'clock at 3 miles. Captain Startup stated, Thank you, we pick it up. It's got a flashing light. Subsequently, the captain reported it as a couple of very bright blue-white lights flashing regularly at a rapid rate. 
They looked like the strobe lights of a Boeing 737. The cameraman of the film crew had come across some difficulties when trying to capture the objects on film. Yeah, you can see the one to the right of us is still reasonably bright. We can see them, but it's just about impossible to film them. Because by the time the, the cameraman gets his focus, knows exactly where they are, they disappear again. The size of his camera and the small seat that he was sitting on between the pilot and the co-pilot made it hard for him to film the lights without sticking his camera lens in front of whoever was flying the aircraft. Despite the challenges, Crockett did manage to get some footage with his Bolex H16 EBM electric drive 16mm movie camera using Fujicolor 8425 ASA 400 color reversal film and his Kern 16 to 100mm zoom lens. The footage depicts the image of a blue-white light against a black background and then Crockett quickly turns the camera to the left and films some of the dim red lights of the meters of the instrument panel. The blue-white light makes other appearances within the footage but there is no references to time or location for these. Although there are no reference points for these other appearances, the durations of the clips of film of the blue-white light are 5, 1.3 and 1.9 seconds, which could be interpreted as slow pulsing on and off. The footage then goes on to show 5 seconds of dim images that show the distant shoreline of Kaikoura with some brighter lights above the shoreline. Again, there is a similar problem with the audio commentary that was provided by Fogarty. As we have no time indicators, we can only assume their place in the sequence of events from the actual content of his statements. Fogarty recorded the following statement. Now we have a couple right in front of us, very, very bright. That was more of an orangey-ready light. It flashed on and then off again. We have a firm convert here at the moment. Quentin Fogarty, when interviewed for an early 80s television programme investigating the sightings, had this to say on the events. And by the time David and myself got onto the flight deck, I could see two bright lights. And in retrospect, it now appears that this object was quite low and in fact was reflecting on the water. We just kept looking at this one bright object that looked uh, like a very bright star outside our starboard window. So we turned towards the object and at this time David was continuing to film and at one stage he said to me, he got very excited and turned around to me and said, you know, it's got a brightly lit bottom and a sort of transparent sphere on top. And I was doing a tape commentary at the time and I remember saying that that sounded like a classic flying saucer shape. And I think it was the last person to see it was that I looked out the right-hand side of the aircraft and looked, peered right down. And this object just went below the aircraft and disappeared. Um, nobody connected with this case has been prepared to say that uh, they are extraterrestrial because I don't think you can ever say anything is extraterrestrial until you can actually physically hold on to it or meet with the inhabitants or you know all the thing lands in central park and you beam at live television around the world and then people would say it was hoaxed anyway um but there are a number of possibilities and i think that probably the strongest of all the possibilities is that it is extraterrestrial the flight north
It was around 1.01 when the aircraft finally landed and the newspapers were unloaded. It would take a further hour for all the other pre-flight preparations to take place for the return trip to Blenheim. It was originally the intention of the TV crew to get off the plane and spend the rest of the night in Christchurch. But it was felt that because of the sightings and the fact that Crockett complained because he had felt he had not obtained much film footage, he and Fogarty decided to return northward with the plane to obtain more footage if possible. Neri had been quite frightened by the sightings and refused to get back onto the plane. Therefore, Fogarty decided to invite a reporter, Dennis Grant, who lived in Christchurch, to fly northward. Fogarty and Crockett decided to do another piece to camera that was the complete antithesis of the previous one they had tried to do in the cargo hold. We're now in the radar room at Christchurch Airport. It's about uh, quarter to two, and in about another 20 minutes, uh, we intend to take off again in the Argosy and uh, retrace the route we took only a few moments earlier. Uh, we've just heard from Wellington Radar that there are still targets in the Kaikoura area. So this time we're hoping to get better film than we did last time and uh, all I can say is we'll see what happens. At about 2.16am the plane took off from Christchurch. As before, David Crockett was seated between the pilot and the co-pilot and Grant and Fogarty were in the cargo hold during takeoff. At around 3,000 feet, the air crew and Crockett could see a very bright light ahead at about 30 degrees to the right. In fact, they were actually looking at two lights, one above the other, the upper being brighter. Captain Startup turned on the weather radar in the mapping mode and this picked up a strong target in the direction of the light at a distance of around 18 nm. The pilot and co-pilot agreed that the size of the radar target on the screen was about three to five times larger than one would get from a large boat. Startup's initial impression was that he was looking at the moon, a slightly squashed moon. Then he realised it couldn't be the moon, which was, in fact, far in the west. He described it as a white sphere with a tinge of orange that was lightly flattened at the top and bottom. Guard compared it to a squashed orange. The colour was similar to that of a sodium vapour lamp. Fogarty and Grant had now come up to the flight deck and they also saw the bright lights. Looking over towards the right of the aircraft and we have an object confirmed by Wellington Radar. It's been following us for quite a while. It's about four miles away and it looks like a very faint star but then it emits a very bright white and green light. I must admit, this is uh, just a little bit frightening. Grant said his initial impression was of a white-yellow sphere, like a ping-pong ball in a dark room, and illuminated by a single ray of light. Grant, who was standing behind Startup, also had a good look at the radar screen. He said that in his mind there was no doubt that the direction of the radar target as indicated by the well-defined angled lines on the radar screen, was the same as the direction of the lights. He also noted a light beneath the main bright light, which might have been a reflection from a cloud. Fogarty recorded his immediate impressions in several statements. 
We are now about three minutes out of Christchurch and on our starboard side we can see two very bright lights, one much brighter than the other. It's like a very, very bright star and just below it is another light, not quite so bright. Two or three minutes pass, then he records, Those lights appear to be travelling with us. They are still off the starboard wing. The brighter light is still above the other, and it has moved slightly ahead of the other. It is extremely bright, much brighter than any of the other lights in the sky. Fogarty stated that the light would dim and brighten. He said it would occasionally go behind a cloud, which is a possibility since there was a cloud layer that evening. It is lighting up the clouds around it, he said. Crockett's film unfortunately only picked up a single light that is bright enough to overexpose the film on most frames. This could mean that the lesser light was too dim to be filmed, or simply a reflection in a cloud, or in the ocean. For the next ten minutes they continued in an ascending straight line. The radar target initially moved radially to a distance on the order of 8 to 10 nm. The object was travelling a bit faster than the aircraft. Then it slowly dropped back to the right, finally leaving the radar screen at the limit of its sweep. At 2.26am, Fogarty recorded the following statement. We must be about 30 miles out of Christchurch, according to Bill's startup. It came as close as 10 miles to us. At the same time, Bob Gard reported to Wellington that the plane was about 32 nm from Christchurch, at about 11,500 feet, and that there was a great big target sitting at 3 o'clock to us, position about 12 nm away. During all this, Crockett filmed the light using his 100mm zoom lens. Crockett started filming from the middle seat, but got out of his seat and crouched behind the co-pilot. Crockett filmed about five and a half minutes of footage at a frame rate of 10 frames per second. The objects that were captured on the film after viewing them looked roughly elliptical and tilted at about 45 degrees to the horizontal. Then they become more or less elliptical or triangular, then followed by an almost circular appearance. At around 2.29am, the plane had reached its final altitude of 13,000 feet, and Captain Startup decided to turn the aircraft towards the light to see what would happen. Startup had the impression that the light was travelling parallel to the plane. He initiated a turn at the rate of a two-minute orbit and watched the instrument panel. If any of his meters on the instrument panel had indicated any signs of abnormal operation, he would turn back immediately. However, all the meters indicated normal operation. Startup continued to turn the craft and was surprised to find that he couldn't get directly facing the object. The light had stopped its forward motion. It was in Startup's opinion that the light was taking some kind of avoidance action that would prevent him from flying towards it. As the plane flew in the southeast direction, the light moved towards the rear. The co-pilot said that the light moved so that it was between the plane and the bank's peninsula. 
Shortly after the right turn, Crockett decided to get his larger Sun Macro Zoom 80-240mm lens. He obtained the lens from the cargo hold and installed it on his camera using a flashlight. Unfortunately, because of the very dark conditions and the vibrating nature of the plane, he did not manage to install the lens properly, which resulted in most of the images being out of focus. Fortunately, some of the images are almost close to focus. The images showed an extremely bright light that appeared to have a large roundish bottom with a smaller top, with an overall shape almost like a bell. The plane returned to its original track, reaching Kaikoura East at 2.46am. Fogarty recorded the following message. We've just now passed Kaikoura and there's been no further activity. There are pinpoints of light in the sky, but nothing's been confirmed on Wellington radar. I, for one, am hoping that we've seen enough, and the rest of our journey back to Blenheim will be uneventful. I've had quite enough of UFOs for one night. Then suddenly, at 2.51am, a bright light appeared ahead of the plane. The captain called Wellington to ascertain if there was a radar target in that direction. Wellington reported... A strong target at 12 o'clock at 20 miles. The plane reported back to Wellington, We have that one also, and quite a good visual display at the moment. It looks like a collection of lights. Fogarty recorded the following message. About 30 seconds after that last statement, we have another one right in front of us. Very bright, seems to be a long ways away. And another one just to the left of it. That one flashed extremely brightly. They've both now faded. The other one's flashing again. It's giving off an orange flashing light. It looks like an aircraft beacon. It's moving off. It's extremely bright. It fades and it's dropped. It seems to have just dropped at an incredible speed and it seems to be rolling and turning. In fact, one light has another beside it. Oh, I don't know. I really don't know what's going on. It appears to be over the hills. There appears to be a whole cluster of them, in fact. At this point in the recording, about one minute after the sighting started, Crockett yells to Fogarty. The tape recorder picks up his voice in spite of the engine noise. I can't see anything. Then Fogarty resumes his commentary. You can see orange and red along the lights. There's one particular one that keeps flashing to the right-hand side of... You can see three distinct lights. In fact, it looks very much like the same sort of pattern we saw when we came over the Kaikoura coast on the way down. But there wasn't as much flashing. It really is quite strange. After this rare and somewhat frightening cluster of sightings, the flashing lights disappeared but there were some other appearances of lights and complementary radar targets. However, sightings happened rapidly and Crockett got no more film of the unidentified lights. The last portion of Crockett's film was of the plane approaching and landing at the Blenheim Airport at around 3.05am. This is possibly the only known UFO sighting event which combines so many multiple airborne witnesses with airplane radar, recorded comments and colour film footage. The fact that the lights moved in response to actions taken by the plane is an indicator 
of intelligent control. Is it possible that considering both the Valentich incident and the Kaikora lights together, that maybe Valentich could possibly have witnessed the same thing and fell foul of their erratic flight? Or even he could have been distracted by a similar display of lights and plummeted into the sea. Unfortunately, I can only provide you with the stories behind these events. You will have to make up your own mind regarding how it fits into your beliefs and philosophies. Links to our Facebook page and email address are in our bio and in the show notes. So feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing, or even suggest future episodes that we can cover. Next week we'll be looking at the festival of Samhain, and going into the myths that have turned this ancient celebration into the fear-filled funfest it has become. Thanks for listening. My name is Richard Daniels, 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 and I am the archivist for the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is a publication dedicated to exploring some of the strangest and most bizarre locations across the country, where hauntings, curses, cryptids and more have all been reported. I am now custodian of its archive and am gradually exploring many of the lost files in order to re-release them. You can find the case files which are now available at occultariaofalbion.com The Occultaria of Albion can also be found on YouTube and as a podcast. Go deeper and join the fan club for exclusive content. Go to patreon.com forward slash occultaria. Remain vigilant and remember the wolves of weird. Oh, loose.